huge news, years in the making, my brand new book that my publishers refuse to publish, Money Matrix. Beat the money system and build generational wealth. Understand the three main ways that the banks productize you and make money from you. You'll be able to turn that system against itself, build generational wealth and multiple streams of recurring income. It's all at moneymatrix.cash. And if you're quick, the first few hundred registrants and buyers will receive many special bonuses from me. The brand new Moneymaker Summit three-day special event. Meet me at a champagne reception. Meet me at a multi-millionaire networking dinner. Go now, moneymatrix.cash. This is huge. Hi, it's Rob, and welcome to this first ever Ask Me Anything Live in a bit of a restructure I've done of my various platforms. Okay, so Marika has said, how do you deal with haters or people that are going out of the way to stop your growth or to try to damage your brand? Um, Well, this is a good question. Um, And there's lots of different ways of dealing with it. And I think every every, um, question is context dependent. Um, And I always like to put the context into the question, which is why some of my answers are a lot longer. So you get the deep dive answers from me, whereas you might get the sound bites from someone else, for example. So if you have got someone who is defaming you, defamation, so there is material loss to your business and reputation that can be proven, then you may want to get a lawyer involved or you might want to, you know, essentially go pretty aggressively on getting them to stop. But if you're to get um, a lawyer involved and it end up being litigation, you have to prove material loss, which to some degree may not be that fair. But if you think about it, if you could didn't prove material loss, everyone would be suing each other for breathing. So I understand. But at the same time, it gives people a bit of, a bit of license to talk a load of shit about you and you not really be able to do much about it. So you've got to keep your evidence. You've got to screenshot anything that anyone might have said or done. If you've had refunds or lost business, you've got to get it proven. And of course, a lawyer's going to cost you 10, 15, 20 grand at minimum if you go through the you know, litigation. And so you've got to weigh that up as well. So that, that is the most extreme example. The level down from that um, would be to contact them, maybe politely, maybe firmly, Uh, and ask them to stop. Um, Now, they may be doing that because they've had bad service or they they were good and then they turned bad. They may be doing that because they're a competitor. They may be doing that because they're jealous and envious. They may be doing that because that's just what they do all day, every day, because they've got nothing better to do. When you can understand the reason why they're hating and doing it publicly, that helps because usually then you've got some information that you can maybe appease them or get it to stop. If it's not really costing any material loss to your business or your brand, um, as much as it's not fair, you can block them, unfollow them, make sure that they can't see your content on social media. They have no means by which to, to follow you online and just get rid of them from your internet space. That will be le- very liberating, by the way, for your emotions. You, you, it, within weeks, you won't, you, will ima- you won't even know they're there. I have, um, I have picked up critics and trolls and haters over the years. Of course, it, it's a numbers game. If I was a Dalai Lama, I'd still have critics, trolls and haters. 
I raised 17,000 pounds for someone's life-saving kidney operation and I still got hate for that. So it proves that you're going to get hate for anything that you do. Um, and, and over the last three months in the lockdown, a few have got a little bit more aggressive. Maybe they're bored. Maybe they're really struggling in life. Usually, this, I think this is a saying worth remembering, hurt people hurt people. Um, and so they may have struggled in their business and they may be really hurt. Um, and it depends on the situation. I actually think showing com some compassion from people who are hating on you and actually trying to find out what's driving it and if there's anything that you can help them with and maybe trying to reach out that way, I think that can be very powerful. And I've turned people around doing that and that's very much surprised them. But not everyone's ready for that. Not, any, not everyone w one wants that because some people are just professional rob haters. That just seems to be what they were born. That's their purpose when they were born. That was their destiny. What do you want to be when you grow up, Johnny? A Rob Moore hater. That's what I want to be. Um, so I will sometimes try and deal with compassion if that's not going to work. Uh, and it's clear that there, there's no turning round. Then I will block them from most of my, well, all of my social media. Now I do have um, uh, online, um, what would I call it? I have a VA, I have a brand manager, have a head of social media. So if I've blocked a certain person who's become a bit of a troll or a hater, well, actually a person isn't a troll. Um, a troll is a fake profile. So yes, it's a person, but it's a fake profile. Um, by the way, if, if you're getting trolled by a fake profile, then you absolutely, absolutely should report that. Report that to social media, even report that to the police. Trolling is illegal. Um, and I believe all trolls should be stopped. Some trolling has caused people to um, commit suicide. It's a, a despicable thing to do to people. And it's weak. Um, because they're hiding behind a fake profile. And I think that, um, you know, we should all make a bit of an effort to report trolls. You know, people, haters aren't always haters, though. You know, haters are critics that are forceful. And actually, you're not dealing with them very well. Um, so you've got to actually work out um, what's the situation. Um, but I can tell you this. Um, if they're hating for the sake of it, they're not really damaging your brand. There's not really much you can do anyway unless you're prepared to go legal on them and shut them down. Thing is, if you go legal on them, you've got to shut them down. You've got to annihilate them. Otherwise, they're just going to come back and come back and come back. So if you don't fully annihilate them, then you might have just ended up creating a lifelong foe. Even though this is, doesn't seem fair, it doesn't. But the cost to you of being successful, the cost to you of putting yourself out there and building your brand and your reputation, the cost to you of that is critics, trolls and haters. That is the cost. They'll have their own cost, don't worry. They'll get their own comeuppance. You just have to have faith in that. But yeah, like I said, in the lockdown, um, there's a few more and, and two or three of my, um, you know, maybe more well-known critics have, have gotten a bit worse, not just with me, with everyone, because, you know, like I don't have a critic that only trolls me and only hates on me and doesn't on anyone else. Um, they will criticise and troll and hate on everyone else. So, you know, you're just being put in a box that they perceive you're the same as others in. And I've just blocked them and I can't see them on any social media and they don't exist in my world. And my world is such a better place for it. My world is a beautiful place without this. And it doesn't have to infiltrate my mind when I'm on social media or, or have me worried about being on social media or trigger me. Now, of course, you do need to keep an eye on those of your brand and your reputation. That's why my brand manager, my head of social media, my VA, you know, they, they'll, they'll be able to keep an eye just in case. And they only ever message me something that's really serious that I need to know. And that might be once every six months or something like that. Um, there's a, a saying, a, a little quote, which I, I really think is appropriate. Um, never wrestle with a pig in shit. You both get covered in shit, but the pig likes it.
Never wrestle with a pig in shit. You both get covered in shit, but the pig likes it. So when it comes to critics, trolls, haters, although I'm gonna put a proper critic to the side for a minute. A proper critic is someone who's giving you feedback and uh, giving you some, a balanced perspective so that you can improve and grow. And someone who's good at figuring out downside to upside, upside to downside. Someone who's not scared to put another opinion across or challenge your view. You shouldn't be calling them haters, they're not haters. You should be embracing them, dancing with them, exchanging with them. You should be grateful for them. You should embrace them into your um, social media community because they will keep you accountable and they will keep you growing and improving but it's the trolls and the haters. I mean, I've, I've had haters who I proved wrong, proved wrong, proved wrong, proved wrong. And they're, oh, but what about this, Rob? No, but I proved that. Oh, no, but what about this? I proved that. Oh, but what about that? I proved that. Oh, but what about that? Bank statements proved that. Net worth proved that. You know, all the properties don't prove that. Oh, oh, but what about, uh? So in 1985, you shouted at your teacher, you wanker. And it's like a slippery eel covered in Vaseline. You just can't hold, you can't catch them. So you gotta let them go. What is the name of the TV shows you've been on and invited on, but it didn't happen? So Axe the Agent was one where Mark and I were pretty much um, the, the, the forerunners for um, being cast on that. I don't know if that made the air or not. I was on a quite a big reality TV show on Living in 2006 called Get a Life, where I was a mentor, um, mentoring someone who's, you know, maybe wasn't that confident in their life. And there was, I think, eight of us, eight mentors, eight mentees, and we were living in a house. Um, there's been another couple that never got um, aired, so you wouldn't know the names of them. Some of them don't even have a name. Um, How the Other Half Live, I turned down. That's quite a big TV show. The Secret Millionaire, I turned down. You may have heard of that. That's quite a big TV show. And I turned them down because my wife, my business partner, my, my MD... Um, didn't necessarily th think they were right for my brand. Although The Secret Millionaire was really more my choice. It was because a couple of people I know had done it and, and, and I felt like I might be positioned similar to them and I, I maybe didn't want to. I don't know, maybe on reflection that wasn't the best decision. I don't know, you won't know, will you? Because you haven't done it. Um, there's one at the moment which is they're billing to be the next apprentice. But of course, I've heard that a few times. Uh, but they've got me quite far down the line on that. But obviously, since the lockdown, that stopped. There must have been 15 different castings Mark and I have done that have got there, but not quite. And that's just the way it is. Carol, um, what do you do when a good client copies your work and passes it on to their clients for free? Um, yeah, so it depends again on the material loss. So as much as these things aren't fair, if you can't prove any loss, there's nothing you can do really legally unless you're prepared to pay 10, 20 grand for lawyer's fees or more or a bit less, depends, um, just to stop them. Now, some instances you might have to take a commercial view and pay that kind of money to stop someone um, because, it, you know, if it could brand, damage your brand or your reputation or cost you a huge amount of money or, you know, it could be a real trademark issue. Um, usually my strategy, if someone rips me off, nicks stuff off me or copies me, call them up on, on, on a um, withheld number uh, and just say, hi, it's Rob. And then hear the deathly silence and then just talk to them really nicely and politely and try and build a bridge and try and understand um, why they did it. Or at least just try and listen to them and not make them feel threatened and see if I can maintain some kind of relationship. And, you know, if we could come to an arrangement. Uh, and sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. Uh, then the next time, you know, you might have to get a little bit more forceful and you might have to point out some of the consequences of that. 
I know some people um, when they've been pissed off with someone, they've done a video on their name on YouTube or they've put a page up on their name on Google. I've seen that work and backfire. Um, I'm certainly not suggesting that because, you know, when you fight fire with fire, you've got to expect it back. Um, I think if you make your work very much intellectual property and you make it very clearly yours, um, they can't really nick it because it's going to be obvious that it's yours. And if you take the view in life that, well, you know, everything is a lesson, then what's the lesson for you, Carol, here? The lesson is, well, you know, maybe I need to make my work more intellectual property based, you know, make more visuals, make more um, acronyms, you know, make the design of everything so clearly mine that if someone tries to copy it, well, it's so obviously Carol's or have, um, you know, some some good copyright or trademarks on it. Um, you know, photographers have watermarks, don't they, across their photos um, and that might help for next time. So hopefully that helps. Entrepreneurship, people or numbers game? I think um, predominantly a people business um, because I think without people, you don't have clients, you don't have staff, you don't get feedback. Um, if you're terrible at building relationships and partnerships and joint ventures and affiliates, I don't think your business is gonna grow. Um, of course, numbers game, that's a really generic statement. What does numbers game mean? Does that mean um, you know, you, you do 100 sales calls and you close one. So does it mean you have this attritional outlook on business or does it mean tracking your KPIs and your metrics and your balance sheet and your profit and loss? I think if a business is about a profit and loss and a balance sheet and it's not about a product, a service and caring and serving and solving, then I don't think it's probably a, a viable, scalable product. But of course, it has to make profit and you have to be driven by your KPIs and your, your, your profit and loss your management accounts in order to know that it's a healthy business. So probably a bit of both. I mean, usually when people ask me left or right, um, well, the answer would be it depends on context. Uh, and why couldn't, you, why couldn't it be a bit of both? Is X good or bad? Well, it's good and bad. You know, is, is having lots of ideas good or bad? Well, it's good and bad. It depends too many ideas and you get overwhelmed. Lots of good ideas and you, and you disrupt your industry. Um, is um, like, Loving starting businesses, good or bad? Well, good if you start a lot of good businesses, bad if you start too many businesses in one go. So often answers to questions, because I get asked a lot, left or right, A or B. And I'm not being flippant here, I'm giving an answer which I think is accurate. Um, and that is, well, could I have both? And could it be both? Could it be a bit of both? Could it be a, a paradoxical balance of both? Or it might depend on the situation. I have loads of ideas and sometimes that's the biggest curse ever. And sometimes it gets me out of trouble or, you know, makes, um, you know, me outwit or outmaneuver my competition. So, yeah, um, Anna's just said here, there's a book called Profit First um, that explains this well. I mean, I would say um, product first. I would say people first. Um, but I, I get the concept of profit first because a lot of entrepreneurs are thinking about product and people and design and website and business cards and logos and they're, do, and, you know, they're doing free consultations uh, and they're not actually um, focused enough on making money um, because maybe they're a bit soft, maybe they don't like conflict, you know, maybe they're more of a conscious type brand and so profit can be a bit of a dirty word. So you need to balance both. All right, so Nishanth, you've sent me some stars, so thank you very well, very much. Connor thinks my hair looks well these days. Connor, you know I love you. You know I do. Thank you very much. 
would you dye your hair if it went white or grey? Um, I mean, you can never say, can you? Um, I have no problem with people who dye hair. You know, it may look better. They may not like grey. I've got some grey bits here and here. I actually really like them. Um, I can't say I might like a whole grey beard. I tend to think that quite a lot of men actually look quite good grey. And so at the moment, I think I probably wouldn't dye it. I'd just let it roll. I've never dyed my hair. Not that that would be bad. I've never dyed my beard. People would argue I probably should have done because I have a very red beard. Um, but no, I don't think I would. Cosmetically, I'm not really bothered about doing anything um, to myself. Um, as you can see, I've got a load of wrinkles there, but I, I'm okay with them. Um, though I am getting this tooth moved forward because you can see it's back. It got knocked back. I mean, it was a bit back anyway, but it got knocked back when I, 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 I hit it when I was doing a workout. So I'm having uh, that move forward because it got knocked back. And I had a sinus operation. I don't know if you can see, but my nose goes slightly to the side and it was dead straight before the sinus operation. And I'm thinking about having it straightened. I'm not sure. Um, but no, no Botox, no dying and anything like that. Not that I would judge anyone that does. Um, Stuart said, would you go on Dragon's Den? Um, well, the answer is no. And it's not because um, I don't think it's a good show. Um, it's because I'm not an investor into businesses, really. It's not my area of expertise. So as much as it might be good for your brand, although you could argue maybe five years ago would have been better. Could argue, you know, it's kind of, it's peaked, hasn't it? Um, but I don't know that much about investing my money into companies. I've hardly done it. Mark and I are, are bootstrappers. You know, we start companies from the ground up. Or we do buy companies, but we buy distressed companies. We've bought three. Well, we've bought two and pretty much got one um, for nothing. Um, but we don't like invest, you know, a million pound for 40% of a company. We're not dragons, angels or vultures, as they're also known. So um, one, I don't think that'd give me the credibility to be on the show, even though I've probably got the money to be on the show. And two, it's not my business. I wouldn't really want to do that as a business model because I wouldn't be as good at them as working out investments. I mean, it'd be a fun thing, of course, trying to work out what companies would do well and all that, do it for fun. But no, so, so the answer, Stuart, would be no there. Okay, John Paul, how do you deal with unreasonable clients who call up your supplier because they don't trust you? Yeah, um, I'd probably call them up and say, I noticed you called my supplier. I just want to check if you're OK um, and if you're OK with our service and if there's anything I could help with. So we kind of have this little ratchet system of communication. And step one is to never assume and always ask and phone people up and talk to them. Non-threatening, non-aggressive, because you'll put their back up and seek to understand because actually you might learn something. And you or a staff member or your company might have inadvertently done something wrong. Um, and then you'll get a chance for them to explain their side. And then you can try and come to an agreement so they don't do that again. If they do that again, you might need to get a little bit more aggressive. And if they do it again, then you may need to, may need to go hard on them. Um, uh, and yeah, you know what, though? Um, if you lose your shit with um, someone, even though if it's warranted, I think if you lose your cool, your emotions, you totally lose your rag. I think you'll, there'll always be quite a big downside to that. And Mark and I always discuss with each other that one of the biggest lessons that we've had in business, the great lessons of business, is that um, it's taught us to manage our emotions better. And everyday stuff happens in my company and out of my company and to my company and for my company and in my social media groups and about me and my brand, which I think is wrong, unfair, bullshit, lies, defamation, 
Um, I, I, every day stuff like that happens. But if I went around bitching and moaning about it, even though I might be justified, I'm going to be bitching and moaning all day and everyone's just going to think I'm a bitcher and moaner. And it's not going to get the outcome. You losing your shit with people, whatever it is, however you emotion, get emotional with them, whether it's passive aggression or whether it's you know, direct aggression or threats, that never works. It's like shouting at a kid. It never gets what you want. So um, I think you've got to understand why they did it. Um, and, 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 you know, pr probably try and go in and, and, and cut a deal based on an agreement of being reasonable and get something in writing, even if you just get an email sent. So, you know, once you've got a little bit of accountability via proof, then, um, you know, it might not happen again. If they persist, then you've probably got to be a little bit more overt and aggressive and never allow yourself to be bullied in business. Never allow yourself to be bullied in business. But yeah, two or three times in the last 14 years, Mark and I have lost, Mark and I, or Mark or I, both of us have done it, have lost our shit and it's cost us. We've lost our shit at staff member, they've left and nicked a few staff. We've lost our shit against, you know, a partner that we broke up with and, you know, they've kind of, um, they've slandered us and there's been um, defamation against us from them. And we, we, you could argue, we kind of were part of the cause because we lost our shit with them, even though they stole money from us. You know, we had someone that stole money from us. Um, so it, it never really pays and the great the business is the great teacher of managing your emotions. What's your thoughts on having a website now? Well, I have robmore.com, progressiveproperty.co.uk and I think that that's really important if you want to build a significant brand um, and you want to own Google, um, ideally, um, let's have a look, I'll search Rob Moore um, and uh, number one on Rob Moore is robmore.com. So that'd be a good reason to have a website. Number two are videos from YouTube three of them with the slider bar. To the right-hand side, it's got my Wikipedia, it's got my books and my social media profiles. Number three is Twitter. Number four is about Rob on robmore.com. Number five is podcast on robmore.com. Number six is my YouTube. Number seven is my Facebook page. Number eight is my Amazon page. Number nine is my page on progressive property. Number 10 is a webinar someone's promoting for me. Um, so if you didn't have a website, you'd lose two of those 10, but someone else might outrank you. Um, so in that regard, it's good to have a website. I think also if um, you, know, you want to look like you've got a significant brand or build a significant brand, I think you'd want a website. Um, but did you notice that my Facebook page, actually my LinkedIn sometimes comes up on page one, my Twitter, my YouTube, they're all ranking on page one of Google as well. So you could, could argue to set up and start fast, you could set up a Facebook page, you could have your LinkedIn profile, you could post um, you know, regularly on Twitter and YouTube and you'll rank on Google. So there's an argument for both, but don't let setting a website take you three extra months to start your company. Because you know, start now, get perfect later. Did I go to uni? Yeah, I did. Um, most people don't know this and they probably don't assume I'm smart enough. Um, I went to university, I got a degree in architecture and it was a complete waste of time and I've never used it since. A degree isn't a waste of time. If you want to be a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, then you know, a degree is probably a good way, but you can self-educate as well. But if you want to be an entrepreneur and set up a training company like I have, or uh, all right, yeah, there are certain real estate um, degrees, aren't there? But really, if you want to be a, you know, a, an entrepreneur through and through, either do a business degree or don't do one and actually get hardcore work experience. If you worked for someone like me for three years, um, you know, or, uh, some other multimillionaire or managed to work with a billionaire or in a really entrepreneurial company, 
you would learn way more in three years, way more than any degree. I've had people that have followed my work for a month and said, Rob, I learned more following your daily lives than I did doing my MBA. Um, which I, you know, I'm obviously really humbled by. I've had people say that to me. Now, I've not done an MBA, not criticizing it. Probably loads of really good stuff on there. Um, you shouldn't criticize what you've not done. But I'm just saying that's what people have said to me. So, yeah. How do you overcome the I can't afford it excuse? You have to find out what the real objection is because that's not the real objection. I can't afford it is usually the, um, the reason to just fob you off. Um, so if earlier on in the sales process you ask them what's most important to you in um, you know, investing in X product or service or whatever outcome it is that your product provides, what's most important to you in X product or service. Let's say you'd have a confidence course. What's most important to you in gaining your confidence? And you find out their highest values and you link the offer to their values. You find their greatest pain points and you link the offer to their pain points. Um, you ask them in advance, is there anything that would stop you moving forward with my confidence training? And you find out, you get them to articulate that one main objection. If you do that early in the sales process and you find out they really haven't got any money, well then you can, um, you know, you can move, um, you can move them out and, and, and go on to another um, prospect. I think the Sandler Rules is a really good book for um, sales. What they do is they sort of reverse the sales process from what most people teach. So that they cover, they get rid of a lot of those fine objections at the start. So you're not sort of three quarters of the way or more down the sales process. So finding out their values, finding out their pain points and linking the product and service to their values and solving their pain points and using their pain points and their reasons why as a motivator to buy the product and service. Ultimately, um, that will help you overcome a lot more the I can't afford it excuse. Would you say it's better to go with an estate agency or property investment management company? I think that's a good thing to do. I think if you work for an estate agent or a letting agent or a property trading or deal sourcing or deal packaging company or property training company, um, then you're going to get an unbelievable education if you work for the, there for a year or two or three, if you can afford the time and if the wages are enough and, you know, you may be a parent, etc. So I actually worked in a property sourcing. Um, it was a bit of a, an innovative company, shall we say, but it, mostly property sourcing and some property training. And I worked there for a year. And I learned more in that year than I did probably in my whole life, if I'm honest, other than maybe the stuff my dad taught me. Um, it was a brilliant education because basically our boss made me and Mark do everything. Mark would go overseas and source all the properties. We'd have to sort all the contracts. We'd have to do all the marketing, the collateral, the brochures, the Google ads. We'd, you know, the, the selling on the phone, go and speak at the events, go to the expos. We were doing everything. And, and you know, I felt like, man, we're being worked like donkeys here. But God, we were getting the knowledge. And that really helped, I think, carry us over and set up progressive property. So that was really good. And that really worked for us. And I, I talk about that quite a lot. And, and not a lot of people talk about that enough. Um, but you can quit your job if you've got a little bit of capital to live on for a bit. Or you can quit your job and go full time into property, even if you haven't got a huge amount of capital and burn that boat and, and start deal packaging and sell deals for three grand a month. You sell one deal a month for three grand or five grand and you've, you know, you've probably got enough to live on there. That can all be done. Um, where to start? I would read Property Investing Secrets, Christy. It's one of the books I've co-written here. And I would also listen to the Progressive Property Podcast. And I would join the Progressive Property Facebook community. And I'd spend a few weeks while we're the, towards the end of this lockdown just gobbling up information. Read all the books, Property Investing Secrets, Cash in a Property Crash, Multiple Streams of Property Income, 
Um, listen to all the property podcasts from Progressive, Progressive Property Podcast. Get involved in all the discussions um, and put some questions in the Progressive Facebook community. And before you know it, you know all the strategies out there, service accommodation, lease options, joint ventures, buy to let, HMO, rent to HMO, service, rent to SA. You'll know them all uh, and, you'll, and you'll, sort of, you'll be a bit closer to figuring out which strategy is for you. Uh, Marika, was there a deal that you did or a specific activity that pushed you to the next level? Um, well, look, I wouldn't say there was one that took us from 1x to 10x, which is kind of popular a misconception. But there's definitely, you know, snakes and ladders. There's definitely some ladders. There's definitely some snakes as well. Maybe that's a different question. So what are the ladders? I would say um, Mark and I buying single lets in the first place because Mark and I, well, Mark actually, he protected me from them, but me sort of watching him, he bought overseas off-plan new build and they didn't really work. And so he got his education. Mark always calls his education with bad deals his entrance fee. So his entrance fee was learning about um, overseas off-plan and new build by buying one or two or three of them and then being a bit shit or very shit. And then we started buying quite run down, local, pretty low end, um, two bed, one and two bed flats and three bed houses. And we bought dozens of them and they worked really well for us. And that was the model that really worked first. So that was our first property model that worked. And we did the buy, refurb, remortgage and recycled the cash. And we bought, we've actually now bought hundreds of those. So that was level one. Level two was then going into HMOs and doing multi-lets with six rooms and eight rooms. Level three was when we started buying um, pubs. So we bought pubs, police stations, offices and converted them into 32 rooms plus. So that would have been the next level. We bought um, an old gentleman's club, which is really about four times the size of a pub, maybe. Yeah, I think I showed you, you know, Marika, when I showed you around some of our properties and I walked you past the last one, the smallest one. Um, but that's probably, the, yeah, that's probably the size of four pubs. So that would have been the next level. And then the next level was big commercial conversion, so retail. So, you know, buying pound land and buying B&M home stores and, you know, 35, 40,000 square foot, 85,000 square foot, 100 unit conversions. So I'd say they're the, they're the sort of level ups in, in property. You know, when you can buy property for millions of pounds with cash. So Mark and I bought two properties, both millions of pounds with our cash. Um, no JV partner. So that's obviously a level up, isn't it? Because, um, you know, in the early days, we were doing all no money down and all joint ventures. Although you could argue it's kind of better that you, I suppose, actually doing no money down deals and well, all of the deals other than the ones I recycle cash from properties. So you could argue all my deals have no money, been no money down because even the ones I put money in have been recycled from property that I bought no money down. So that was definitely a level up doing no money down and joint ventures. Um, our training business I would say um, we became the UK's largest property training company for, for turnover and size of customer base. Oh, it's at least five years ago now, maybe a bit longer. And that was a, that was a goal of mine because um, you know, it's not just ego or scale or competitiveness, but it's reach and impact. We bought a personal development training company, which was doing millions of pounds before the last recession. We bought it for five grand. That was a level up. That company... Um, did the lion's share of 20 million quid in 2016. Um, so that was a big level up. Um, taking all of our properties, the hundreds that we had, and then setting up a letting agency, that was a level up. Um, 
you know, you become a millionaire, that's a level up. You become a decamillionaire or, you know, whatever the next level is, that's a level up, isn't it? Uh, I think, you know, having best-selling book is a, is a level up. Um, your peer group, you know, when you meet and frequent your time with billionaires and multimillionaires and really successful people and celebrities, that certainly makes you feel like you're in a, on a higher echelon on your journey. So, yeah, um, all, of those, all of those things have pushed me up. Um, Nishanth, do you believe there's a winning formula for becoming a successful entrepreneur? I think there's lots of different things that um, becoming a successful entrepreneur. It probably depends on your business model. Um, but I do think that different personality types can be a successful entrepreneur. Um, I'm actually going through all the billionaire interviews I've done and I'm creating commonalities of the billionaires. So of the 12 billionaire interviews that I've done everything that they've all said in one way or another, I'm going to collate and I'm going to do an episode on it. Um, I'm not saying I'm the first person to do traits of billionaires, but, I'm, but you know, normally they do five or six or eight main things. Well, I'm actually going to list out a lot more in a lot more detail. Um, so let me just give you some things that work for me, Nishanth, and maybe things I've learned from my mentors. So I would definitely say the ability to solve and the desire to solve problems. But I mean, being an entrepreneur is solving problems. That's what it is. Um, I was thinking today in the car. So, um, you know, my Porsche Panamera, I have a Porsche Panamera Turbo S. So it's the highest spec Porsche. And I, I bought it five months old. The lady paid £175,000 for it. I know it's a lady because I bought it off her. Um, she swapped it for a Bentley Bentayga, which confused me. I think I got the better car. And she specced it with everything. And it's got massage seats. It's got, um, the only thing it didn't have is the adaptive cruise control, which is where it accelerates and brakes on cruise control. It has normal cruise control, but it has air-cooled seats, obviously heated seats, heated steering wheel. It has all the different settings of speed, comfort, sport, sport plus. It has a hybrid engine. Um, you know, some of the cars have heads-up displays and it has all these features. It has the blind spot things on the mirrors. And I was thinking in the car, all these new features in a car that become standard, they were created because a car company solved a problem for a driver. So if you think the blind spot warning, you know, there's um, cars as an option or, or expensive cars have it as standard now. They have the, um, the light that flashes, a, a warning when a car's in your blind spot. Well, that's a problem for a driver that a mechanic, an engineer or a car company solved. Um, the, you know, the ca reverse camera and the front camera. Um, my car does camera. It, it goes up to satellites and shows you the, uh, the view above the car. And it, of course, it beeps everywhere when you get near something. Well, that was just a problem of people not being able to park very well or crashing their car. Um, infrared cruise control um, or adaptive cruise control, it accelerates and brakes, um, you know, uh, in front of you, you know, probably comes from, I don't know, maybe, um, maybe it's um, autonomous cars, um, but maybe it's just more comfort or convenience. Um, but you know, a lot of the safety features are from deaths. So a car company won't, won't often come up with a brand new idea for a new optional extra or feature on a car. It will solve a problem. So um, what I think the main winning formula for being an entrepreneur is to solve problems. Now, what a lot of people don't like doing is solving problems because they don't like problems and they're wishing away problems and they're moaning about their problems and they're bitching about their problems and they're complaining about their problems. I interviewed the founder of Netflix and he's like, I have this, these rose-tinted glasses where um, the rose tint is not actually good, it's I'm looking for problems everywhere. That's a problem, that's a problem, that's a problem. And I have this, these skeptical rose-tinted glasses and I'm looking for all the problems in the world. But then I'm lo immediately looking for the solution. 
So you should seek out problems, problems from your clients, problems from your staff, problems from your community, and then seek to solve them. And having an attitude of solving problems, as opposed to, oh, I don't want problems or why problems, or I just want an easy life, that's definitely a trait of a successful entrepreneur. I think being able to take rejection, um, you know, and go back for more and, and be persistent towards that end goal and not taking rejection too seriously and not taking rejection personally. Or if you do, breathing it in and dealing with it anyway and building your product and service and pushing it out to the world. I think that's a winning formula for a successful entrepreneur, definitely. I think you've got to have a good business model and people often don't say that. They're often talking about all these human traits, which are important, but you've got to have a good business model. And if your business model doesn't work, if your business model is too early or too late, it's going to fail. So right now, e-commerce is a great business model. Obviously, Jeff Bezos has got a great business model. Steve Jobs had a great business model. Richard Branson has brilliant business models. So that would definitely be an, another winning formula. I think your ability to sell, whether you're selling a vision, selling a product, selling a service, selling a company, selling an idea, selling a culture. You know, some of the best business people in the world, um, they're brilliant salespeople, even though you don't think of them as quintessential product salespeople. 10,000 songs in your pocket. What a great sales pitch from Steve Jobs. Uh, Mother Teresa, what a great saleswoman. Um, Richard Branson, Nelson Mandela, what great salespeople. So being able to sell a concept, an idea, a vision, that would be maybe my fourth one. Another one is to have a grand vision. What is your grand meaningful vision? What's the purpose of your company beyond you, bigger than you? How did you take it from local to national, to intercontinental, to global, to intercon intergalactic? How do you make people buy into that vision, get inspired by that vision? So there's five for you there, Nishanth. I'm sure there's more, but I want to go and answer some more questions. All right. Cool. Do you do drop shipping? Um, my wife has a, a small Amazon business. Um, we obviously have an online e-commerce business, though I don't personally do drop shipping, though my um, friend, partner and head trainer for e-commerce in progressive success, Rich Hawkins. He does a massive amount of that, makes loads of money doing it. Uh, you just can't do everything. I, I would actually quite love, love to do more e-commerce and drop shipping or white labeling, um, you know, but I have a big information marketing business that's 15, 20 million sometimes a year. I have goodness knows how many books. I have all my podcasts. I have um, two training business. I have a laying agency. I have my property company. Um, I have my own company, Disruptive Entrepreneurial Ventures. So uh, you can't do everything. Um, Sean has asked, have I ever thought of doing ayahuasca? I have thought about doing ayahuasca. Yeah, and I do know plenty of people who've done ayahuasca. Um, and for many people, it's obviously, it's opened their third eye or, um, you know, got them feeling connected with the universe. According to anyone that does that, we are all connected. There is just a collective. There is no individual. There is collective. Apparently the ego disappears um, and it can be a very transformative experience for a lot of people. I have never done it. Um, I'm going to be honest with you here. Um, I think if I didn't have a brand and a reputation for what I teach and do, you know, being an entrepreneur, having a business and a company, and I just had a personal brand, I might try a, a live where I got pissed. I don't drink, by the way, but I still might try a live where I got pissed. Or I might try a podcast where I got pissed. Or a conversation where we both got pissed. Or I might try ayahuasca and do a live or a podcast or whatever. But I, I suppose that there's a little bit of fear there for me. Um, 
yeah. So I have thought about it, but I haven't done it yet. Okay. Um, my son, age nine, watching now, would like to know how to become an entrepreneur. Right. Victoria's son, age nine. First thing is you've got to work out what's your product. So um, are you going to set up an e-commerce business? Are you going to sell vinyl online? I, I tell you a great business model for a kid, um, a young entrepreneur, is to go around your house, get all the stuff that your mum and dad don't want or need and sell it on eBay to raise some cash. Um, do a 50-50 split on the money, 50% to them, 50% to you after costs. And then go to their friends and their friends and their friends and say, hey, look, have you got any stuff you don't need? I've got loads of vinyl that I want to sell. I've got Cartier sunglasses I don't use anymore. I've got quite a lot of things actually I'd like to sell on eBay, but I haven't got the time to do it. Quite a lot of good clothes, etc. Um, so if I had someone that could sell those for me properly and knew how to do it, I'd, there'd be a JV there. And then you could go for your, your mum's friends and family um, and you, know, you could raise a few grand and then you've got some money for stock. You've got some money to start your e-commerce business. You've got some money to set up your online platform. So um, that's definitely something I think is a cool thing to do, um, to bootstrap some cash. Um, I, I think um, a young entrepreneur, now this, I have to speak to the parent as well here. So I don't know what your son's called, Victoria, but um, you, you, Victoria, obviously will have a view on how much they can be on social media and what they can do. Um, and, and I respect your um, right to privacy. Um, at the age of nine, you know, they're often online and you're starting to think about this time. Um, but maybe they're allowed to set up a business channel on YouTube or a business channel, you know, or a channel around them, but for their business on social media, as long as, you know, you can have the good parental controls. Um, because the, the quicker you start your social media platforms, the quicker you're going to build your following, your fan base, your customer base, um, because you can get all your customers on social media now. Whereas back in my day, being old, 41, I had to go and, you know, burn the shoe leather. I had to go to networking events and get customers face to face. Um, yeah, so there's some good things to start. Oh, and listen to all my episodes on The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Listen to all my audio books and then any other entrepreneurs you like to follow. Consume all their work. You'll get loads of brilliant ideas from those. What's your greatest support when facing up hardship in business? Um, really good peers. So entrepreneurs, business owners and successful people in their field to talk to, to lean on, to you know, chew the fat with, to have a bit of a rant to. I try my best not to bitch, moan, complain, criticize. Um, when do you ever hear me name and shame people online? I bet you haven't heard me do that in 10 years. You don't hear me bitching and moaning, complaining about individuals. You know, I might, the media might piss me off or a, a, a hater might piss me off, but I'm not one really for bitching, moaning, complaining, getting into arguments, debates, etc. Um, but you do all need it from time to time. So if I'm challenged, I'll call up Mark. I'll speak to my MD. I'll speak to my um, friends who are also business owners. You know, um, we'll put the world to rights. That's one big support. Number two is the personal development I've learned over the last 15 years and my ability to turn a problem into a solution or look at the upside or work out, okay, how does this serve me? What lesson can I get from this? What am I supposed to learn? You know, where am I failing? How can I transcend this? How can I turn this into an advantage? Um, and, and there's some, been quite a lot of things that have happened um, personally that have been quite challenging that when I found the upside, they've actually been some of the best things that have happened to me. So that's the second thing. I think having a really good mentor. So John Martini's work has really helped me um, and I can see a lot of upsides in downsides that I wouldn't have been able to see before. Um, so that certainly helps. I think being involved in an active, productive, progressive, disruptive community, 
like we are, listening to audiobooks and podcasts, getting down the gym, going out for walks. Um, th these all help me and hopefully that helps you, Nishanth. Stuart, what was your and Mark's first big mistake when you guys started um, at Queen Street Chambers? Oh, the first mistake I can remember is um, we merged and it wasn't an official merger, but we sort of merged with a company um, and we, we did it too quickly. We didn't get a proper contract sorted out. I think that the partner as well would probably feel the same. Um, and uh, we ended up, that partnership ended up not working. Now, look, no bad feeling on our side. I'm sure no bad feeling on their side. I've spoken to him since, but we went far too quickly into this partnership. Um, got excited, saw all the upside, didn't do the contracts, you know, didn't do the sort of capacity planning risk analysis and all of that. Um, and then um, there were a couple of things that happened and um, we had a big standoff one time. That was when Mark got angry and in someone's face, Mark off, you, you fucking stole money from us and all this. And yeah, that was probably a big challenge. And what did we learn from it? Maybe slower to get into partnerships, maybe um, yeah, have better contracts. Although since I've still made that mistake, because here's the thing, when you make mistakes as entrepreneurs, that might be who you are and you might make that mistake many times, but on the other side of that might be your greatest strength. You know, people say, oh, what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? Well, um, I'll give you some examples of how you don't have a strength and a weakness. They're, 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 you can't pull a strength and a weakness apart. I have lots of ideas. That's my greatest strength and my greatest weakness. I'm really good at forging a lot of partnerships. That is my greatest strength and my greatest weakness. I am one of the quickest entrepreneurs you will find. That is one of my greatest strengths. That is one of my greatest weaknesses. Uh, I am prolific with my content and what I create. That is one of my greatest strengths and that is one of my greatest weaknesses. So my strengths and weaknesses, you cannot separate them. And if you look closely enough at anyone, their strengths and weaknesses are inseparable. They, um, they dovetail, they're part of the same whole. And that took me a lot of years to work out. Can you briefly explain how you pay yourself first? Yeah, no problem. And it's a good question, actually. So what you do is instead of having a load of direct debits that pay all your bills, um, uh, you know, and your expenses and your outgoings, and then at the end of that, you're left with what you're left with. As soon as your salary goes in, you pay into a savings account and a save and never touch account and you pay yourself first before all your bills come out. That's how you pay yourself first. Now, when you're an entrepreneur, you truly pay yourself first. When you're an employee, you're always second, even if you're first, because your tax comes out at source. You get your pay slip and your tax is gone. So the government gets paid first and then you get what's left and then maybe you pay yourself second. So that's why I love being an entrepreneur because you can probably pay yourself first because you can offset a lot of expenses against your tax and pay the tax. You know, you, you pay your tax twice a year in arrears. Um, one of the reasons I love being an entrepreneur. So good question, Hong. Hopefully that answers it. You're all legends. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for following my work. Thanks for sharing my work. Thanks for giving me stars. Thanks for being a supporter. Thanks for asking questions. Thanks for defending me and standing up for me. Thanks for implementing my work. Thanks for taking on what I teach. I love you all. And remember this, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything.